Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. The following article is from the Journal of the Early Republic, Volume 9, Number 3, Autumn 1989. It is written by Stephen C. Bullock. The title of the article is A Pure and Sublime System, The Appeal of Post-Revolutionary Freemasonry. By the time Hiram Hopkins took his seventh degree of Freemasonry in August 1826, he had decided that Freemasonry was of extraordinary importance. I thought, he recalled, that nothing excelled the Masonic degrees except the Christian religion, and thought that they were but little surpassed even by that. His final degree, the Royal Arch, involved two or three hours of hard labor, but Hopkins again found himself excited by the ritual, which was, according to the most popular contemporary handbook on Masonry, indescribably more august, sublime, and more important than all which precede it. Thus, when the man who had led Hopkins through the ceremony took him aside and warned him of a plan to publish the secrets of masonry being contemplated by William Morgan of nearby Batavia, New York, Hopkins was appalled. If Morgan was guilty of such an outrage upon the laws of masonry, he later remembered thinking, it was just for him even to lose his life. Morgan's threat to publish masonry became the topic of many anxious discussions in the weeks to come. Many wanted to send Morgan forcibly out of the country. Hopkins would have gone even further. I thought, he recalled, he deserved to die. Less than a month later, area masons abducted Morgan, taking him to what may have been his death. Hopkins, a resident of Lockport, New York, played a small role in the event, helping his cousin, the county sheriff, prepare the jail for the expected arrival of Morgan. After the incident became a major public issue, however, a guilt-ridden Hopkins turned against the fraternity. He decided that his previous high opinion of masonry resulted from the hold Satan had over me. In the words of the relative who passed on Hopkins' account, Freemasonry was a hydra-headed monster which has struck at the root of Christianity and republicanism. Over the next ten years, many others, both masons and non-masons, joined Hopkins in attacking the fraternity, creating a movement that nearly destroyed the order in the north and crippled it in the south. The development of anti-Masonry has become a topic of great interest to historians in recent years. Moving away from the older view of the movement is a strange agitation, or as an example of the paranoid style, they have systematically explored the ideas and abuses that fed the attack on Masonry. Yet in making Hopkins' disillusionment understandable, they have often left his original loyalty as obscure as ever. The few studies of Masonry itself that have appeared have begun to deal with this problem. Masonry, they suggest, was not the peripheral backwater it once seemed. Rather, it reflected widespread beliefs about religion, virtue, and charity. The fraternity also provided contacts for Americans in a mobile, expanding society, serving as a means of gaining charity, loans, jobs, and perhaps even votes. Together, these studies suggest why Hopkins might have become a Mason. They are less helpful, however, in explaining why Hopkins should have found the fraternity so exciting and how the beliefs of Masonry fit together with its practical aspects. The Appeal of Freemasonry 
A fuller examination of post-revolutionary views of Masonry suggests that merely placing the fraternity into the mainstream of society and culture does not go far enough. To Hopkins and others, the fraternity represented more than a simple restatement of common values or means of gaining contracts. Post-revolutionary Masons saw their fraternity as profoundly connected to the utopian dreams of the revolution as a peculiarly Republican organization. Freemasonry, they argued, would exemplify, teach, and spread these ideals, with Masons serving as priests, teachers, and missionaries of liberty, virtue, and true religion. As one contemporary of Hopkins argued, the fraternity was a sacred cause, an opinion shared by a Presbyterian deacon in Morganstown of Batavia. He would, he told people, as soon speak a word against God as against Masonry. Embodying the central values of its age, Masonry also expressed its deepest contradictions and tensions. The fraternity, for example, seemed extraordinary partly because it promised to resolve one of the central problems of the period, the reconciliation of public and private interests in a free society. According to its proponents, Masonry would create a voluntary community of concern that could provide for both the interests of its members and the good of all. The anti-Masonic assault of the 1820s and 1830s so effectively destroyed these claims that the fraternity's remarkable position in the early republic has been difficult to recover. Yet, even an understanding of this attack requires a recognition of Masonry's great appeal. The violence of anti-Masonic rhetoric reflected the power that the fraternity had held for men such as Hiram Hopkins. Hiram Hopkins was not a Mason on June 24, 1825. When he attended the ceremonies lay in the cornerstone of the Ten Erie Canal locks at Lockport. But the powerful verbal and visual images of Masonry embodied in the rituals of that day convinced him of Masonry's connection with his highest values. By the end of the celebrations, Hopkins had decided to join a lodge. After the procession of Masons, Hopkins watched an officer pour corn, oil, and wine on the stone, invoking the blessing of God upon the structure. Then an oration by an Episcopalian priest, according to Hopkins' later account, portrayed in lively colors the benefits of the institution, that it was the handmaid of religion and that on the existence of this order depended much of our scientific knowledge, that it had been upheld and supported by all the wisest and best of men in every age, from the building of Solomon's temple to the immediate disciples of our blessed Savior. Hopkins was deeply moved. My feelings, he wrote, were excited to a high degree by all these things so excited that he applied immediately to the local lodge. The cornerstone ceremony, as Hopkins realized, identified masonry with the central values of the community. In the ritual, the brothers assumed the roles of priest, mediating between the sacred values of the community and the profane everyday world. Consecrating the locks through the literal baptism of corn, oil, and wine, symbolizing nourishment, refreshment, and joy, or in some versions, masonry, virtue, and universal benevolence. Masons recalled and reinforced the sacred basis of the community. Masonry thus exemplified the goals of a free and prosperous society. By 1825, this role had become widely accepted. Masons provided the ceremonies for all kinds of public enterprises. Structures dedicated by the fraternity included government buildings, like the new Massachusetts and Virginia state houses, monuments to the creation of the Republic, like the Bunker Hill and the Concord Minuteman monuments, institutions of higher learning like the University of North Carolina, and even churches, including, surprisingly, those of Low Church Methodist and Baptist. In 1793, Freemasons, led by George Washington, laid the cornerstone of the central symbol of the Republic, the capital of the United States. 
the building the non-Mason Jefferson called the first temple dedicated to the sovereignty of the people. In this ceremony, as in others, the congruence of Masonic and public purposes became clear. The silver plate placed on the stone was laid, according to its inscription, in the 13th year of American independence and in the year of Masonry, 5793. The practice of Masonic cornerstone lanes came originally from England, but the ceremony took on new meanings in a country attempting to redefine its metaphorical foundations. American cornerstone lanes represented part of a self-conscious attempt to create new images to celebrate and inculcate the ideals of the revolution. During the colonial period, civic ritual had centered around the monarchy and its supports, the church and the elite. The revolution called each into question. Americans faced the problem of whom to entrust with the sacred symbols of society. With its ideals of morality and equality, Freemasonry seemed to provide a solution to this difficulty. The fraternity seemed untainted by power or aristocracy. Masonic lodges prohibited discussion of political and religious matters, while the fraternity's antiquity, nearly all agreed and dated back at least to biblical times, seemed to refute any suspicion of desire for power. Furthermore, Freemasonry lacked explicit barriers to admission, accepting men regardless of their wealth, religion, political opinions, or nationality, a significant provision in a society preoccupied with unnatural aristocracies. But not all could join the fraternity. Masonic standards, brothers claimed, ensured that only those of high moral virtue could enter the lodge, thus preventing the unworthy or the immoral. As Jefferson argued, the most effective forms of government would do. Masonry provided for the selection of the natural aristoi, elevating those who possessed virtue and talent without regard to the artificial distinctions of birth and wealth. The seemingly fundamental agreement between Masonic and Republican ideals, together with the Masonic membership of such revolutionary leaders as George Washington, Joseph Warren, and Benjamin Franklin, gave Masonry an important position in the early Republic. By the 1790s, Masons began to emphasize Republican values in their own descriptions of the fraternity, stressing Masonry's connection with learning, its teaching of high moral standards, and its promotion of the central values of Christianity. DeWitt Clinton, a leader in the New York Masonry, argued in 1794 that the fraternity originally consisted of scientific and ingenious men assembled together to improve the arts and sciences. These brothers, keeping this learning safe during the Dark Ages and spreading into the world when printing was invented, also formed a moral community operating under a pure and sublime system of morality. The fraternity's universal values rose above religious and political divisions, offering a center of union that could represent the highest values of the Republic in dedicating churches, canals, and government buildings. Freemasonry thus brought Jefferson's natural aristoi into the free society of individuals bound together by disinterested virtue and moral watchfulness that had been the dream of the American revolutionaries and of the Enlightenment itself. Through its civic rituals and its exemplifications of proper ideas, the fraternity played a central role in the new Republican order a situation reflected in the extraordinary growth of the fraternity. Organized as a male fraternal society in London, slightly over a hundred years before the Morgan incident, Freemasonry had come to the Americas in the 1730s. It enjoyed little growth, however, until the age of the revolution, when new groups of men wrested control of the fraternity away from the urban elite and helped spread the society downward in the social scale and outward into the provinces. These new Masons, primarily those involved in commercial relations and the professions, created new superintending grand lodges in every state during the latter part of the 18th century, 
bodies that presided over a virtual explosion of local lodges. By the early 19th century, Masons gathered in nearly every city and small town in America. By 1825, the year Hopkins joined the fraternity, nearly 500 lodges met in New York State alone, an enormous growth from the 10 or so lodges in existence there at the close of the Revolution. The great interest in Masonry extended even beyond the lodge room. Enthusiastic Masons placed Masonic symbols on tavern signs, samplers, and even the Great Seal of the United States. The growing popularity of Hopkins' given name Hiram, after the Masonic notables King Hiram of Tyre and Hiram of Biff, further suggests the growing appeal of the fraternity. Rare before the Revolution, the name became common after the war. In this new context, praise of the fraternity reached new heights. Masons were, according to one brother, the sons of reason, the disciples of wisdom, and the brethren of humanity. According to another, the fraternity, divinely taught to men, divinely inspired was destined to enjoy its own millennium when Christ and the Church reigned on earth. Even non-Masons joined the acclaim. Newspaper and travel writer Anne Royale considered the brothers the most benevolent class of mankind. Yet, as Hiram Hopkins knew, Freemasonry involved more than disinterested benevolence and selfless devotion to virtue. His entire Masonic experience reflected an interweaving of high ideals and self-interest, his first thoughts of joining arose when his cousin suggested that Hopkins run for town constable. The flattered would-be candidate, however, discovered that his cousin had to consider whether his duty lay with supporting his expected opponent, a Masonic brother. Besides his excitement at the ideals of the Lockport Cornerstone Lane, Hopkins also knew that Masons had preference in many particulars. The preferential treatment Hopkins expected drew upon an increasingly strong differentiation between Masons and non-Masons after the Revolution. In the new degree ceremonies formalized in this period, members took obligations to aid and support fellow Masons, agreeing to employ, do business with, and even, according to some later accounts, to vote for their brothers before any person in the same circumstance. Thus, unless others had a clear advantage, Masons were to prefer those within the fraternity. William Nelson of Pennsylvania, for example, co-signed notes for a brother, according to his later account, from motives purely Masonic, while Brother Henry Clay, when he left Lexington, Kentucky, for several months in early 1807, left his outstanding law cases to three fellow lodge members. Besides such individual aid, Masonic lodges distributed substantial amounts of charity to brothers and their families in distress. Anne Royal, a, the widow of a brother, for example, arrived in New York City without funds and was aided by a benefit at the theater sponsored by the fraternity. "'Tis masonry that prompts the sacred theme,' suggested a poem on charity written for the occasion. "'Our hearts,' another argued, "'no vile distinctions know, but vibrate strong to every chord of woe.'" Yet such boasting raised charges that masons, in helping others, restricted themselves to brothers who had, after all, paid into Masonic funds already through their membership dues. Indeed, with the explosive growth of the fraternity, its charity increasingly went only to brothers. The same poem that argued that the Masons transcend vile distinctions and infold in one embrace the various kindred of the human race also suggested that they rightly preferred a brother to a friend. Speaking at the opening of the Massachusetts Lodge in 1801, Edward Richmond similarly noted that some questioned, as have other later opponents and historians, whether partial affections were compatible with general benevolence. The tensions between the partial, self-interested side of Freemasonry and its claims to universal exemplary virtue clearly involved a measure of mystification and even hypocrisy. 
By claiming that their society represented universal values and sought the good of all, Masons could better seek their own interest. Yet, the situation involved something more complex than high ideals masking naked self-interest. The coexistence of Masonic universalism and particularism suggests another level of tension, one rooted in a particular situation of post-revolutionary America. The dual nature of Freemasonry resulted from the ambivalences of republicanism itself. The primary tension of the revolution lay between liberty and equality on one hand, and fraternity on the other, between the desire for freedom from restraint and for an orderly community. By destroying unnatural authority, Republicans hoped to create a society where individuals could act harmoniously without traditional restraints. Yet the very social changes that encouraged the revolutionary vision made achieving that goal more difficult. Republican society was at odds with Republican ideas in certain crucial ways. Increasing geographical mobility and expanding commercial networks loosened many of the traditional supports of kinship, neighborhood, and acquaintance. The tender connection among men, DeWitt Clinton lamented in 1794, had been reduced to nothing by the infinite diversities of family, tribe, and nation. This disconnection led, furthermore, to a weakening of authority beyond that expected by many as communal restraints on self-interest loosened. Although nearly all continued to believe virtue necessary for freedom, differences arose about the best way to organize society so that virtue could predominate and be passed on. The history of the early years of the Republic was largely a debate about how to achieve such a society and to keep it from sliding either into anarchy or despotism. The fraternity seemed to transcend this debate, promising to spread and inculcate both sides of the Republican tension. First, Freemasonry seemed to provide for a new family and community that restored the watchfulness and personal concern that Clinton believed lost. Those within the fraternity, an orator argued, lose the name of stranger in the endearing and honorable appellation of brother. A suggestion given practical form by Charles G. Finney's uncle, who advised the young student to join the fraternity, because if a Freemason, I should find friends everywhere. The fraternity thus provided for the harmony and affection promised in the Republican utopia without trespassing on liberty or creating new and coercive structures of authority. Because of its voluntary nature, Freemasonry disciplined and taught only those who chose to enter it. The fraternity's connection with liberty went even deeper. However, for Freemasonry itself, with its celebration of virtue and merit and its acceptance of different nationalities, religions, and political opinions, seemed to advance the ideals of equality and freedom. Besides embodying and exemplifying the ideals of the Republic, Masonry also taught and spread them. Its lodges were to serve, a prominent orator noted, as so many temples of virtue and schools of moral and religious instruction. The brothers were not only the priests of the new order, but its teachers as well. The fraternity's influence extended even beyond the confines of the lodge room. Besides educating its members, Masonry spread Republican attitudes and Republican relationships to the world, acting as a missionary society entrusted with a sacred cause. Masonry encouraged the ideals and the practice of virtue, raising the moral tone of society and creating the self-control that made society without traditional restraints possible. Thus, a Massachusetts Mason argued in 1810, the efforts of brothers to spread Masonry have justly ranked them with the benefactors of mankind. If it were not for Masonry and Royale argued, the world would become a herd of savages, and more, if it had not been for Masonry, it never would have been for anything but savages. The fraternity, a more sedate orator suggested, was the great instrument of civilization. 
But Freemasonry, in attempting to influence the world, found itself shaped by the very processes it sought to counteract. The fraternity's universal pretensions did not lead to a blurring, but a strengthening of boundaries between itself and the world. The new intensity of Masonic loyalty and ritual helped create an internal atmosphere far from the restrained standards of public decorum that it seemed to inculcate. Teaching self-control in a disconnected world required strong methods. Lessons that, following Lockean psychology, relied upon creating intense impressions on the scenes of the brothers. The new degree rituals, altered and regularized after the revolution, made the Masonic meeting place a carefully prepared environment. Every character, figure, and emblem depicted in a lodge, noted the second degree ritual, has a moral tendency and inculcates the practice of virtue. The clearest expression of this emphasis on strong impressions lay in the new degrees that took hold in American masonry after the revolution. Growing up at a rapid rate to fulfill the demand for Masonic experiences beyond the three original degrees, the higher degrees sought to overwhelm the new members' resistance to the moral precepts of masonry. The royal arch that Hopkins took the night he learned of Morgan, for example, took initiates through seven sets of veils stretched across the room, over a pile of rubble, and into a trap door. The Knights Templar degree, even higher than the Royal Arch, ended with the new member drinking wine from a skull to reinforce the solemnity of its moral obligations. Such emotionally intense rituals strengthened the distinction between the Lodge and the world. Increasingly, brothers spoke of the Lodge as a place apart, a refuge from the outside world, rather than, as in the colonial period, a place that extended the bounds of sociability. Masonic meetings, one order noted, involved a temporary retreat from worldly commerce into the bosom of the Lodge. These new private experiences sought to teach universal ideals more effectively, but they also created strong fraternal bonds that could be exploited for personal advantage as the brothers returned to worldly commerce. Ironically, Freemasonry's attempt to create universal brotherhood ended up providing conditions well-suited to promoting the self-interest of brothers operating in an increasingly mobile and commercialized world. The increasing impersonality of economic relations required the type of trust promoted by Freemasonry, the artificial consanguinity, described by Clinton, operating with as much force and effect as the natural relationship of blood. As a result, Freemasonry could sometimes provide crucial aid. A leading New York politician, for example, assured a worried Solomon Southwick at a legislative caucus that he considered the downstarter Daniel Tompkins a serious candidate for governor. Although Tompkins was relatively unknown, his former Masonic office had brought him into contact with Masons in other part of the state, and they, Southwick was told, will turn out to support him. In its confusion of disinterest and self-interest, post-revolutionary Freemasonry reflected and magnified rather than resolved the tensions of Republican desires for liberty and harmony. The fraternity's internal environment and relationships increasingly diverged from the ideals of openness and self-control celebrated in Masonic rhetoric and public appearances. This development replicated changes in other areas of life that identified and gave new importance to a private sphere of affection and attempted as well to insulate the public world, first government and increasingly the economy, from these particular bonds. But Freemasonry, unlike the family or government, promised to span public and private spheres in a way that circumvented the dangers of both. Facing conflicting demands for both universal benevolence and partial affections, the fraternity seemed to provide a means of bringing together increasingly differentiated spheres, retaining the unity of the Republican vision. 
To many, however, Morgan's abduction seemed to suggest that this unity actually represented subversion of the public world by private ties, that high ideals merely masked selfish loyalties. Freemasonry, a New York woman noted, once appeared to us beautiful like whited sepulcher, but like it, we find it is full of dead men's bones and an uncleanliness. The resulting bitter sense of betrayal created an extraordinarily vitriolic attack on the priestly authority on masonry and angry reaction that drew upon two sources. First, anti-Masonic arguments reflected previous questioning of the fraternity, criticism that had been isolated and unfocused, seldom appearing in print, except in the context of Masonic rebuttals. More important, anti-Masonry fed upon and helped fuel a massive attempt to purify and revitalize American society a vast, disparate movement that included attacks on the corrupt bargain, the Bank of the United States, drinking, and slavery, and crystallized the ideologies of evangelicalism and democracy. Freemasonry now came to exemplify nearly all the evils identified by the new critique of society. The fraternity's exclusiveness now appeared an example of aristocratic relics of monarchy. The promotion of preference, an illustration of the subversion of an open, neutral market by the wealthy, and the fraternity's mixture of public and private activities, a means of undermining government. Even the religious identifications of Freemasonry now suggested a dangerous confusion of Christians and the unconverted. A beleaguered defender of the fraternity mourned in 1829 that it has of late been fashionable to attribute all the evils under which we groan to the existence of Freemasonry and many suppose that its annihilation is absolutely necessary to hasten on those halcyon days which the Christian and the Patriot anticipate. Hiram Hopkins had once considered Masonry as only slightly below Christianity, the most meaningful and direct expression of his ideals. Yet the same fraternity that had seemed sacred in the early years of the Republic appeared in the Jacksonian era a negation of America's most deeply held values. Some 25 years ago, David Bryan Davis noted that Freemasonry symbolized all that was wrong in the mid-1820s, partly an examination of Masonry itself suggests, because in the years before, it exemplified all that was right. So I hope you enjoyed that article. It's kind of interesting how it talks about uh, Freemasonry being so well looked upon initially after the Revolutionary War. But then as it became more, one might say, clicky um, and the groups got together more, that it started kind of getting more of a different view of the whole, quote unquote, secret society type thing. So anyways, again, I hope you enjoyed the article and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.